Right, I think we can make a start. Uh, welcome everybody to the, this uh, event in the LSE Literary Festival. Um, I'm Simon Bendinning and I'm the uh, reader in European philosophy at the European Institute here at the LSE and it's uh, my great pleasure to welcome our speaker today. Um, Lionel burst onto the international scene almost I think when she feared it was never going to happen with her eighth novel We Need to Talk About Kevin which was first published in 2003 that book won the prestigious Orange Prize two years later in 2005 having trickled into the world and then making a big splash and I doubt there are many here who have not read it now I confess that the last time I introduced Lionel Shriver in the London School of Economics where she was involved in a dialogue with Daniel Johnson who's actually here today as well um, I gave a brief summary of the book which she said afterwards not that she didn't recognise it but she hadn't had it put that way before <laughs> <laughs> um, so I won't go in for that but I do think it is worth uh, reminding ourselves of something in that story because of something else which I think is very distinctive and typical of Lionel Shriver's work uh, the, the, we need to talk about Kevin was set in pre-9-11 America and it uh, gives a very rich and faithful view of what at some point a, a character says what passes for a fruitful existence in our time which didn't seem too fruitful Kevin certainly is a child of his time and uh, is called at various points a bad boy uh, now a feature of this time um, is what Kevin's mother at one point calls the ultra-secular character of our relations to bad boys. And what she means by that is that um, whenever bad things happen, someone must be held accountable. Someone or something, but something distinctively worldly. And she talks about the insidious nihilism of modern life without knowing quite how best we should talk about Kevin, but clearly unsatisfied or dissatisfied with what we tend to say, which seems to be, uh, on the one side, some kind of appeal to science, to mechanical defects, something's gone wrong mechanically, which, for which you could have the medical fix, or, on the other hand, something's gone wrong socially, and particularly with respect to parenting, and you blame the parents who should assert control. And Somewhere in the book, the whole inadequacy of all of these responses seems to be played out. And uh, I think what the book at the end wants to say is we need to acknowledge that we don't know so well who we are and what, if anything, makes us who we are. And then encourages us to take on and challenge lots of the shibboleths that we hold about our lives. Um, anything in, in any case which would seem to promise a very quick fix solution and I suppose one of the lessons there would be that we need to talk about what we don't talk about we need to talk much more about what we don't talk about and challenge much more the t t things we tend to say to avoid talking about it and I think talking about what we don't talk about really is what Lionel Shriver does best and I know that the theme of today's talk, touching on both the most personal issues, loved ones facing death, for example, and also the most public and impersonal 
matters, that might be calculations of health budgets, this tension inside the most personal and impersonal uh, is no exception to our having things that we say and things that we don't say enough. So uh, to take this on, please welcome Lionel Schweiger. Should have told Kevin. I should have told Simon that uh, we don't need to talk about Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here to sell you a whole new book. And by and large, if uh, someone described a novel to me as uh, a highly political book, uh, I would suspect it would sell about three copies. And in fact, I probably wouldn't want to read it myself. I don't think that uh, most readers consciously go to novels <coughs> for political <coughs> education. We want to read a personal story. We want something emotional and intimate. But in my experience, uh, if a political issue doesn't have eventual implications for individual lives in a very personal way, then that political issue probably isn't very important. The um, fact is that government policies and wars and other kinds of social conflicts directly affect individual lives, and it's that nexus that as a novelist I'm interested in. That means that uh, I think you can look at a number of my books as the intersection of the public and the private. Now, Kevin is uh, perhaps the most schematic of examples. On the one hand, it's looking at school, the school shooting phenomenon in the United States. And on the other, it's looking at one woman's experience of motherhood, what her expectations were, how re her real life experience of motherhood confounded those expectations. Um, and I think that's what makes that book work. Uh, my fourth novel, Gain Control, is on the one hand about big issues to do with demography and AIDS, and on the other it's about a lonely family planning worker who finally finds true love. <laughs> um, even uh, a perfectly good family is not only about uh, the small experience of three siblings who are um, having to dispense with their parents' things and fight, end up fighting over who gets the house, but it's also about larger issues to do with inheritance and perhaps the, the implicit injustice of inheriting uh, money that you didn't earn from your parents and the more complex psychological issues of what we inherit from our parents in other respects. Even the post-birthday world, while it is largely to do with romantic love, has events from the larger world constantly intersecting it, um, the peace process in Northern Ireland or 9-11 in the United States. Uh, but in uh, my new novel, So Much for That, 
uh, I think we go back to uh, the near schematic design of Kevin, which is, on the one hand, it's about health care in the United States, and on the other, it's about the experience of, of one woman uh, who's diagnosed with cancer and the financial implications of that destroy her husband's hopes for the future. It was originally inspired by, uh, again, two things, one public, one private. First off, the situation with healthcare in the United States drives me insane, so that's the public. But on the private, uh, just about three years ago, a very close friend of mine that I've known for 25 years died of a very rare cancer, almost always having to do with exposure to asbestos, called mesothelioma. So I went through that with her, and by no coincidence, that is the disease that I use in my new novel. Um, so much for that is about a man named Shep Knacker. He is, uh, I guess I would call him a good man. And I think he's one of my only good characters, truly virtuous characters, um, because I'm famous for for characters who are flawed to unendurable. <laughs> <laughs> Shep, when he was an adolescent, went to Kenya with his father and uh, discovered that when they went marketing, they could bring home uh, the groceries for a family of four that would last for two weeks and it cost under three dollars. And it was like, what's this? And his father explained that, uh, that in Africa, for example, there was a whole different scale of economy. That the same amount of money that you have in the United States would go much, much farther if you go to the third world. Well, Shep thought, this is brilliant. <laughs> And it gave him a whole focus for his life. He decided when he was 16 years old that he was going to save up his money, unlike everyone else in his country, and, um, and then at some midpoint skip out and start a whole new life in the third world where his savings would clearly last forever. <laughs> it's amazing more people don't do this. Uh, and at, through his adulthood, he, he kept this up. And when he got married to uh, his wife, Gwyneth, she seemed to be into it. And uh, they pegged this future of theirs, the afterlife. Well, um, Shep built his own business from scratch. It's a handyman business. Uh, he started as a one-man handyman and then started hiring other people and sending them out to other people's houses. And it, was a successful business, and at a certain point, about when he was about 40, he sold it for a million dollars to one of his employees who come, came into a trust fund. And though he did have to pay capital gains, um, he still has over three, 700 grand left, and that seems enough for the afterlife. I mean, that's that's it. But uh, as the book begins, it's been seven years since. He sold the company, and since then, uh, he has been working for this peon sadist who bought the company. 
and his wife has been dragging her feet and coming up with one reason or another why you can't, this wasn't the time to go. So uh, in chapter one, Shep is packing. His wife comes home and he announces that he has already bought tickets to the island of Pemba off the coast of Zanzibar and he is going with or without her. He's tired of waiting. Glynis has her own announcement. She has cancer and she's going to need his health insurance so he can't go. That's the setup. Now, I did say this is a political novel and any political novel has many dangers to face. One of them is obviously that the book degenerates into polemics and uh, obviously novel readers don't want to read Marx and Engels. And uh, you also need to keep some ambiguity about what the so-called truth is. That is, there has to have, you need a little air in the argument. And this is sometimes difficult for me when I have strong feelings about an issue. It's easy to stack the deck and only argue one side. And I probably erred on that side in this book. Um, But you do need to have some play in the argument or you're just writing a treatise. And the other danger is that you write a book that becomes historically obsolete because many political issues are stuck in time. Um, in, in writing this book, actually in publishing this book, I, um, I've been neck and neck with history myself, which is uh, some of the pertinence of the issues that I, I, I bring up in so much for that. Uh, are only super germane to the present if Congress doesn't pass a health care bill. <laughs> so I'm ashamed to admit that the fact that the legislation has got bogged down <laughs> in time for my release date has made me very happy. <laughs> Even though that's political anathema to me. Uh, my solution to these problems has been... Um, to make sure that the book addresses things that aren't simply timely but are also timeless. That is, issues about uh, surrounding illness and death are, I'm afraid, not going to be legislated out of existence anytime soon. Um, And even this whole business of how much money is one life worth, which is probably the thematic focus of the novel, is not going anywhere and in fact is just going to get worse. Furthermore, it pertains to countries outside the United States. It's a big problem in the UK. Uh, You have a whole institution established to figure out how much one life is worth. Uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with NICE, the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence. And they have put a um, pound they basically said, you know, a certain number of pounds per hour. You can, if you can amortize it that way. Um, and I happen to be a big admirer of that organization, even though it gets a lot of stick here. The other thing that I uh, did to try to make sure that the book didn't date was to keep it in particular dates. That may seem ironic, but when you fix a story in time, it doesn't date because it's true to its own time. 
This is set in the recent past. In fact, one of the ways I do that is um, because this book has everything to do with money. Every other chapter begins with Shepnacker's Merrill Lynch account and how much is left in it. So you have the date and uh, and and how much is left in the account. And in fact, that bank account is in some ways one of the biggest characters in the book because you watch that account keep going down. Um, and that way, regardless of what Congress does about health care, this will still be a story which is accurate for 2005 and 2006, and it's still going to be a larger illustration of the way that social policy uh, and even commercial policy can sometimes wreak havoc with people who play by the rules and uh, get, tra get trapped in the middle. Um, the good man suffers. Now, the other thing that I did to try to keep the politics lively in this book was to create Shepnacker's best friend, whose name is Jackson Berdina. And um, Jackson's one of my favorite characters in this book. He is a working class autodidact. He has a high school education and no more. He's taught himself everything he knows. Sometimes his understandings of things are a little imperfect. You know what people are like who get all their information from the internet, <laughs> right? So they know some things and not others, and they got some things wrong. Um, he's taught himself uh, to use hefty vocabulary, but he has, when he uses it, it's sometimes a little off in that way that when you learn when you learn when you learn words late in life they don't ever quite stick in the same way that you, when you learn them uh, as a child. Um, he doesn't quite get it right. But Jackson has very strong views about health care um, for, for no other reason than he, his firstborn daughter, Flicka, uh, has a, a deadly genetic disease called familial dysautonomia which is mercifully abbreviated to FD. And it's, uh, it's a Jewish disease. It's, also, it's extremely rare. Only about 350 people in the world have it. And weird and expensive and painful and a huge pain in the butt for parents. So medical issues are big in his life. And then later in the novel, they get even bigger because he indulges himself in plastic surgery that doesn't go very well. I'll tell you no more. <laughs> so I wanted to read you three passages from this novel. And um, in most events, most literary festivals, I would try to select conventionally dramatic scenes. But since this is LSE, I thought I would read to you the passages that novelists are never supposed to write. <laughs> These are the specifically political passages, and you tell me if I get away with them. The first scene is from early in the book. It's between um, Shep and Jackson. They're just taking a walk in the park, so you don't get a lot of stage direction. Uh, and the medical bills for Gwyneth's cancer have just started to come in. Now mind, remember, 
Shep has health insurance, but in the United States, that doesn't always help. Uh, there are a lot of com companies that have some underhanded practices, and you never get away with paying nothing. Uh, and with the with the sleazier companies, you get hit with some substantial bills. Shep shook his head. Galinus and I have always kept to a tight budget trying to build that nest egg for the afterlife. We've waited for the two-for-one offer on shampoo, bought toilet paper in the economy size of 12 rolls, single ply, got the special on turkey burgers, even if we were in the mood for steak. Now it's 500 for this, 5,000 for that, and they never tell you in advance what it costs. It's like going on a spree, piling all this shit on the counter, and none of it has any price tags. We only pick up 20% in coinsurance, but after that, it, after, that's after the 5K deductible. One single lab bill? That's a hell of a lot of toilet paper. Double ply, said Jackson. I'm thinking, why did we ever eat turkey burgers? And then I remember I'm not supposed to care. Ultimately, I don't care. All that matters is Glynis. That's what they're, they're counting on, bud, said Jackson. That's the whole scam in a nutshell. Same with Flicka. It's your kid, right? So what are you going to say? No, we're not going to treat her pneumonia again because we want the kind of DVD that records. And friend, I hate to say it, but for you, this is just the beginning. I know, said Shep quietly. Even to cover the last stack of bills. Well, you know I've kept this other account where I keep put the proceeds of the sale of knack of all trades once I paid off the feds. It's earmarked for the afterlife, and I've never touched it. But there wasn't enough in our joint checking, so I had to tap the Merrill Lynch. I'd never written a single check on it. Number 101 went for the CAT scan. My guess is you're already on 115. Take my advice and order another checkbook pronto. Signing that first one was strangely emotional, even if it's only money, as my father would say. Yeah, only the proceeds from over 20 years building your own business. It doesn't matter. I just didn't realize at the time what I was really saving for. You ever think about it, Pemba? No, said Shep, and changed the subject. I guess we're lucky, though. We live in the States. Hey, we get the best medical care in the world. Think again, pal. In comparison to all the other rich countries like England, Australia, Canada, I don't remember the rest. Look at all the statistics that matter. Infant mortality, cancer survival, you name it. We come in last, and we pay twice as much. Yeah, well, at least we don't have socialized medicine. <laughs> Jackson guffawed. Shep wasn't stupid, but he could be painfully cooperative. That socialized medicine boogeyman went all the way back to the 1940s, when Harry Truman had wanted to bring in a national health service just like the Brits. Nervous that doctors wouldn't keep raking it in, the American Medical Association concocted this inspired Cold War buzz phrase, socialized medicine, which had struck terror into the hearts of their countrymen ever since. 
a genius stroke of marketing. But history lessons had always put Shep to sleep. You realize 40-something percent of this country is either on Medicaid or Medicare, said Jackson. And all this ooh, ooh about how we don't want socialized medicine. Well, we got socialized medicine for nearly half the population. So the other half is paying twice. Your mugs are paying for your mooches, cat scans, and confiscatory taxes. And a second time for their own damn scans. Confiscatory was a wonderful word that Jackson had only learned about a year ago, and he used it at every opportunity. <laughs> you sound so down on Medicare and Medicaid, but you're not saying that you wish old and poor people didn't have access to health care. Jackson sighed. That line was so predictable. Shep was a class A mug for the, for the ranks of complacent dupes to which, alas, Jackson also belonged. Shep Knacker could be the mascot. No, I'm not saying that. My point is, guys with health benefits don't think they're paying their own medical bills. They cling to their precious employee health insurance as if it's this great freebie. It's not free. They don't understand they'd be getting like 15 grand more in salary if it weren't for the damn health benefit. It's fucking sad, man. Money's got to come from somewhere, Jax. Some big national thing would send taxes through the roof. There goes your 15 grand. Worse, if you earn a decent living. It seems like it's the same dough, but it's not. Think about it. Every piece of paper that just landed in your mailbox cost money. Some officious twit was paid to fill in all those codes and tick the boxes and fire off copies to five other places. 30% of the money spent on medical, medical care in this country goes to so-called administration. Fact is, there's a whole fatty layer of for-profit insurance companies larded between Glynis and her doctors, a bunch of blood-sucking greedy fucks making money off her being sick. And not one of them knows how to set a broken arm. Kick those assholes out of the picture. Or for the same cost, the whole country would be covered without 50 different bills a week arriving in your mailbox. You, of all people, want the government to take over health care? Said Shep, shaking his head with a lopsided smile. Jax, you hate government. You're an anarchist. These companies are so in bed with government, they might as well be the government, Jackson charged back irked by Shep's superior bemusement. Yeah, maybe he wasn't totally consistent, but at least he read stuff. He thought about things, unlike some people who took everything they were told as gospel. Why else do you figure that no halfway credible presidential candidate, Democrats included, ever dares suggesting eliminating the bloodsuckers altogether? Besides, if the feds wouldn't do it much better, they couldn't do it worse. And the whole concept of insurance is to spread the risk, right? To pool the healthy people and the likes of Flicker together so that it all evens out in the end. Well, what could be a fairer risk pool than the whole damn country? Healthcare should be about the only thing the fucking government should be good for. And maybe, just maybe, if you could at least go to a doctor without taking out a second mortgage, people would figure that, okay, they pay taxes, but at least they get something back. Right now? You get dick. Oh, sorry. Jackson kicked a rim of raised concrete. You get sidewalks. I always forget.
he promised himself to. So, okay. Anyway, said Shep, I'm not going to buy turkey burger medical care. At least you lucky you got a cushion, said Jackson. Most suckers in your shoes would be putting this crap on their credit cards. It's a pretty weird version of lucky, said Shep. But yeah, I am lucky. Shit, I'm rich. Not these days. I'm rich, Shep cut him off. And Jackson knew this preacher's son well enough to know that he wasn't bragging. Shep felt guilty. Shep may have been a lapsed Presbyterian, but with this deep down stuff, there was only so lapsed you ever got. You haven't traveled enough, said Shep. Well, excuse me, said Jackson. I plumb forgot to put in my ten years with the Peace Corps in Malawi. I shouldn't be talking about money at all, said Shep. Maybe I'm just getting this out of my system because in comparison to Gwyneth, I have no business complaining. You should always remind me of that. I hardly ever heard you complain about anything. I'd recommend you get more practice. It's not good for a man to take every lump of shit life throws at him lying down. We both take it lying down, Jax. You just lie down with a mouth. Speaking of which, I came up with a title for my new book, said Jackson, hoping to lighten the tone. Ready? Fleeced. How shrewd spongers from vagrants to vice presidents are living off us poor spunkless sheep. Not bad. I like the uh, fleeced and sheep thing. <laughs> you know, keeps up the metaphor. But the spongers doesn't quite fit in. Do you sponge sheep? I'll work on it. That's spunkless. Ever notice how almost all your titles have something to do with dicks? Jackson shot an uneasy glance at his friend. As in, having mine cut off, like every day? Obviously, the experience is central to my thesis. The castration thing is well used. My favorite of yours is cleaner. Which is? Democracy is a joke. Yep, nice and punchy, said Jackson with satisfaction. Good thesis, too. It's theori theoretically possible for 51% of the population to soak the other 49% for everything they're worth. This guy in Venezuela, who's it? Howard Chavez or something. That's how he does it. Really, he just sends the underclass checks. You give the mooches other people's money and then they vote for you. Think you'll ever write it? Maybe. Jackson was noncommittal. But the key is the title. Get that right and it doesn't matter what's inside. You could sell a pile of blank paper called How the Irish Saved Civilization. All those Micks are so flattered, they'll pay 25 bucks to put it on their coffee tables, even if they don't read past the copyright page. Yeah, well, maybe that's the trouble with your titles. Penises and pricks, Shep remembered. How we gutless weenies are being built dry when the other half of the country is on the tit. <laughs> you couldn't call that complimentary. The idea is to make your book buyer feel a little less of a sap because he knows he's a sap, unlike everybody else who are such incredible saps that they don't even know it. I bet they'd prefer to save civilization. 
not my book buyers. They'd rather light it on fire. And the second selection is elucidating Jackson's worldview. <coughs> While eking over the Brooklyn Bridge, Shep allowed his mind to slide to Jackson and his goofball book. Even Jackson didn't believe he'd ever write it. After all, he was one of these guys who were remarkably lucid in conversation, but who seized up at keyboards. It was weird how some people could be so garrulous and articulate when blah, blah, blahing down the street, yet couldn't write a meaningful sentence to save their lives. Their reasoning went spastic. Their vocabularies shrank to cat and go, and they couldn't tell a coherent story of a trip to the mailbox. This is, by the way, why I can make a living. <laughs> that was Jackson. This afternoon, he liked the idea of a title on a pile of blank pages because titles were all he was good at. Still, chumps. How behind our back, a bunch of bums and bamboozlers turn... Let me start again. Chumps. How behind our backs, a bunch of bums and bamboozlers turned America into a country where we can't do anything or earn anything or say anything when it used to be a damn nice place to live. <laughs> well, at titles, he was very good indeed. As for his friend's half-baked theories, Shep had never been sure whether he himself bought into them even slightly. It was difficult to attach these views to a political party, since Jackson thought not voting was a political party. They want something like this. Americans were divided between folks who played by the rules and folks who simply played the rules or ignored them altogether. Jackson spoke of one half leeching off the other for ease of reference, but allowed that the proportions were likely far more dire. The fraction of the population that was being soaked by the savvier sorts who knew the ropes may have been closer to a third or a quarter. Over the years, Jackson had christened these two classes with a series of homespun shorthands whose children's book alliteration Shep remembered with affection. Patsies and parasites, freeloaders and fall guys, saps and spongers, slaves and skivers, jackals and jackasses, lackeys and loafers. He'd used mugs and mooches for three or four years now. Maybe the tags were going to stick. According to Jackson, the mooches comprised first and foremost anyone in government and anyone who lived off government, contractors, advisors, think tankers, and lobbyists. He reserved special contempt for accountants and lawyers, both of whom slyly implied that they were your, on your side when this bloated parasitic cast of interlocutors effectively constituted a penumbral extension of the state, their extortionate fees amounting to more taxes. Other mooches, welfare recipients, obviously, though Jackson claimed they were the least of the problem and as much victims as perps. Marathon runners with sprained thumbs on disability. Bankers, who manufactured nothing of value and whose money from money deployed the suspect science of spontaneous generation. On the opposite end of the spectrum, any mastermind who refused to earn any appreciable income why bother only to be robbed of 50 cents on the dollar? Jackson was indignant at having been raised on anti-communist propaganda. When for half the fucking year, he said, you were working full-time for the government, your country was communist. 
other mooches, the recipients of inherited wealth. Illegal immigrants who would remain undocumented in perpetuity if they knew what was good for them. Synonymous with becoming a card-carrying mug, citizenship as an aspiration was pathetic. Criminals were mooches too, of course. Yet while Jackson scorned establishment mooches who concealed their rapacity behind a facade of rectitude or even gallingly of self-sacrifice, the expression public servant drove him wild. Ordinary decent criminals won only his admiration. Drug <coughs> dealing, said Jackson, was an intelligent, well-considered career path for the average young person. Enterprising, self-employment, sans the Schedule C. He esteemed anyone who worked off the books or serviced a black market. He had a soft spot for mafia movies and had seen Goodfellas five times. To Jackson, criminals embodied the seminal American spirit. As for the mugs, Jax cheerfully confessed to his own lifetime membership. They comprised all the remaining schmucks who got with the program, but mostly because they had no guts and lacked imagination. Mugs exhibited neither resourcefulness nor innovation, ostensibly core traits of the national character. Having never undergone proper adolescent rebellion, mugs were developmentally retarded, and as grown-ups were still figuratively setting the table and taking out the trash. They may have learned to say fuck in front of their fathers, but they could never bring themselves to use the word with the Internal Revenue Service. Even on the five-point scale of moral reasoning, where Jackson had dug that up, Shep had no idea. Mugs were stuck at the bottom. For mugs weren't motivated by virtue, but by fear. They sweated bullets over their taxes, adding up tattered receipts for $3.49 and $2.67, and getting flustered when the calculator didn't produce the same result to the penny on the second tally, despite the fact that the recipients of their fervid bookkeeping would blithely drop $349 million through the cracks of the government accounting office floorboards or fritter $267 billion on a dead-end war in a sandpit, a dizzying shuttle of decimal points that never struck mugs as unfair or bitterly hilarious. They got their car insurance payments in on time. Able to afford only collision, these were the same suckers who'd be T-boned by an uninsured Guatemalan running a solid red light and get stuck with the bill. They didn't put extensions on their houses without getting a building permit, belying that they really owned their houses to begin with. To the degree that these poor flunkies were not tippy-toeing through their lives, abdicating everything they ever worked for out of terror, they were stupid. But it wasn't meant to be this way, Jackson insisted. Sneakily, little by little, the mooches had hijacked a system that hadn't started out half bad into a situation that would have mortified the founding fathers who'd never intended to create a monster. Nor did they design democracy as an evangelical religion or a self-destructive export business whereby it actually costs you money to sell your product abroad. What Thomas's, Thomas Jefferson's crowd had in mind was a country that left you alone and let you do whatever you fucking well wanted so long as you didn't hurt anybody. In short, a, quote, cool place to hang out and not this, quote, big drag. 
for government was now, in Jackson's view, a for-profit corporation, although a sort of which the average industrial magnate could only dream. A natural monopoly that could charge whatever it wanted, yet with no obligation to hand over a product of any description in return. A business whose millions of customers had no, bi no choice but to buy this mythical product, lest they be locked in a small room with bad food. Since all politicians were by definition on the tit, none of them had any motivation to constrain the size of this marvelous corporation that didn't actually have to make anything. Occasional conservative lip service notwithstanding, sure enough, over the decades, USA Inc. had done nothing but expand. Jackson predicted that at some point in the near future, the last remaining mugs would get wise and sign on. Once the entire American populace was either working for or living off the government, the country would judder to a halt. It was happening in Europe, he said, already. With a ratio of all mooch and to no mug, there'd be no one left to squeeze dry, and presumably they'd all sit around waiting to die or kill each other. Shep was reluctant to believe that he got nothing from government. Roads, he'd point out, bridges, street lamps and public parks. Admittedly, this is what Jackson meant by the umbrella term, sidewalks. The nominal infrastructure required to, to conduct ordinary life was largely provided by municipal, by municipal authorities, which commanded such a tiny sliver of the pie that on a plate it would fall over. As Jackson frequently observed, if every citizen threw the same ante into the pot, they could cover all their primitive communal needs with chump change, and that was what George Washington had in mind, as opposed to this, quote, obeisance to the king bullshit. While Shep enjoyed the game of coming up with another vital service from on high that was worth the price of admission, drug testing, air traffic control, he conceded that citing the palpable benefits that his taxes accrued to him personally was surprisingly difficult. Yet he also felt that the totality of the many agencies that controlled his life still approximated an order, even a rough, inequitable order, as opposed to the gory havoc of animals running in packs, was priceless. Besides, even if he accepted Jackson's cartoonish categories, he'd still rather be a mug than a mooch, someone on whom others depended, a man as Shep understood the word, although he believed in an implicit social contract that you agreed to take care of other people so that when the time came, they would take care of you. Shep didn't keep up his end of things in order to incur a debt he'd any intention of calling in. He would remain a resource rather than a drain to the end of his days if he could help it, if only because being reliable, self-sufficient, and capable felt good. This big, round, grounded solidity surely beat the thin, tittering tee-hee of putting one over on people. It beat the sneering self-congratulation of a confidence trickster and the huddling sneakiness of a cheat. There was nothing enviable either about the resentful gratitude of the beholden. Curiously, although forever ridiculing the gullible stalwart who was responsible, dependable, and steadfast. Jackson had long admired Shep Knacker for embodying these very qualities.
the last passage I'd like to read, not too long, is near the end of the book. Um, It's an attempt to capture a feeling that I sometimes have, and I'm rather relieved I don't have it very often. I'd be interested if this ever happens to other people. Of just suddenly being tired of everything. (laughs) Of having lost an appetite for the very things that I get so excited about. Uh, It's a a weird feeling of I don't want to live a long time. It's, it's, it's It's a sensation of just you can have it. Um, it, it happens to me most frequently I'm going, when I'm going running, so I think a, a, a literal exhaustion is playing a part. But in this case, um, my friend Jackson, I want you to forget this if you read the book because I'm blowing one of the part of the ending, but um, is contemplating, contemplating suicide. And he's walking home. A mild, balming insouciance soothed Jackson most of the way home. He felt tired, of course, but it was a nice weariness, like after weight training. Experimentally, he called up a host of topics over which he'd got exercised in the past. The alternative minimum tax, lax education standards, and the public servant parking fix in lower Manhattan aroused nothing but amiable indifference. He didn't care about excessive building regulations, and he didn't care about Iraq. He didn't care if one of his crews let wet cement drizzle down a customer's patio drain, and he didn't care if they left gouges in drywall from a recoiling hydraulic nail gun, if he were totally honest. At this very moment, he didn't care if someday soon Flicka just didn't wake up, since she was going to die anyway, and that was a good way to go. He didn't care about leaving his wife Carol in the financial lurch because she was an attractive, resourceful woman who would find another husband in no time. As for cheating the feds out of another 20 years' worth of pilfering his income, the sly little opt-out he had in mind was spitefully ingenious, the ultimate tax deduction. He would deduct himself. In fact, it would serve those assholes right if in an act of spontaneous civil defiance, the entire working population of this country followed his lead overnight. Where would that leave the mooches? High and fucking dry. Oh shit, where did all the slaves go? Where is my breakfast? Yet this brief sense of gratification immediately gave way to a deeper, sleepier weariness, far more encompassing like being a boy surrounded by toys he'd outgrown when all the other kids were still enthralled with them. The sensation was probably commonplace for a man of 90. If so, arriving there in half the time was at least efficient. It started on Windsor Place, whose solid palatial dwellings from the 1920s he had always envied. Suddenly the amount of work it must have taken to jigsaw the fiddly wooden filigree that trimmed the big indolent brick porches seemed incomprehensible. It seemed more incomprehensible still that anyone would bother to repaint, repair, or replace 
this vain architectural detail. And rather than admire the geometric lacing one more time, Jackson thought, they can have it. Then the same painless generosity spread to everything in a giddy hurtling rush, like that little threshold you cross when cleaning out closets. And suddenly, instead of agonizing over every heel-worn but still wearable pair of boots, parting with all the junk you'll never use anyway is no longer a sacrifice, but a joy. They can have it. Not just Sunday lunches in Bay Ridge, trying fruitlessly to impress his parents with how their son wasn't some lowly slob. He was Shep Knacker's right-hand man, or later he was in management. But the very tradition of Sunday lunches and the day of the week itself. Thank you notes and surreptitious spongings of gravy stains. Heat-crimped packaging that only opened with pruning shears and incompatible software. Ramadan, Columbus Day, and picnics. National self-determination, recipes for banana bread and Amazon.com. Bungee cord jumping, suicide bombing, and falling in love. Space stations, perda, and male pattern baldness. Right to life protests, self-defrosting refrigerators, and hemlines. Christmas tree air freshener, presidential assassinations, and tenure retrospectives on the fall of apartheid. Micro-lending, woodworm treatments, and anti-vivisection leagues, West Bank settlements and genetically modified corn, nuclear anti-proliferation treaties, National Salt Awareness Week, and fluoridated water, narco states, dust ruffles, and, du and bus station, narco states, dust ruffles, and bus shelter vandalism, lucky numbers, favorite colors, and button collections, tribal scarring and polka album of the year awards, tea ceremonies, buzz cuts in alternative energy, feature films, the Fifth Amendment and weather forecasts, Arctic exploration, affirmative action and cell phone contracts, the self, this South Beach diet, elder abuse, and the Battle of Waterloo, burkas, bedsteads, and the designated hitter rule, airlines, heirlooms, insoles, and the European Union, from IEDs, GDPs, and MP3s to Gore-Tex gas shortages and gardening tips, he was just sick of it, man. <laughs> of people and their shit. Thank you. I've never read that last passage before. I'm going to have to work on it. You know it should be done in one breath. <laughs> okay. Right, well, we have about half an hour um, to take some questions. Are there microphones? Yeah. There are. So if you wait until um, uh, somebody brings something to make you audible to everybody, I would appreciate that. Um, so if you would like. Wait a minute. Just a question. I never get those feelings of wanting to die. I've been through so much crap. I'm being put through so much crap mm -hmm. that every minute, every meeting like this is so precious that I, I never have enough. I'm glad for you. <laughs> I'm lucky. Yeah. I've got things to look forward to yeah. at the age of 55 still. Okay, well, uh, at some point, I think I'll just hand, it, hand over to you. <laughs> you can have it. <laughs> Down here.
love the double meaning of your title, and I just wondered, do you start with a title, or when does the title come to you? Oh, you know, that is such a sore subject with this book. Um, I, I, anything but started with a title. Um, actually, with Kevin was exactly the same way. I had the book, I didn't have the title, I, 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 and I'd gone through um, several working titles. I finally, with this book, I, um, I decided I wanted to call it Time is Money. And um, I, I ended up getting rather attached to that title. I liked its thrust, you know, and I liked its aggression. And I liked the literalness of taking that cliche and, uh, and, and, and then, I mean, in medicine, that's exactly what it, what it is, right? So I thought it was appropriate. It was some bizarre reason. Um, HarperCollins in New York, uh, it was somebody in the sales department, I imagine it was someone high up, I bet it was the head of the sales department, they kept us apart, so I don't know, hated that title, and was convinced uh, it, was, it was going to ruin the commercial prospects of the book. I was convinced as well that one of the reasons he didn't like it is it wasn't girly enough, right? And they're always trying to get me to do girly stuff and give my t covers these gauzy <laughs> um, and and I try, I stuck by my guns but at the same time I knew I was in, in trouble because and this is just the way it is in publishing you, you, if you don't have the sales department on your side you've had it because you know they interface between you and me so unless I'm going to be out on the street corner with a stack of these things I needed this guy and uh, I cannot tell you how many horrible substitutes I went through in trying to come up with something that I could stick. I, sh I should really have kept a list of other people's ideas, which were even worse. I mean, you wouldn't believe <laughs> what they wanted to call this book. And finally, um, honestly, it was, it was the day before I, I would have to make a decision because we were moving into the, you know, the catalog and, you know, there, there was no going back. Um, and my husband said, uh, you know, you should call it something like, uh, oh, so much for that idea. And I thought, knock off the idea. <laughs> and I think this has more in it. It's too obvious. It's more, it's, it's got more yeah, subtlety. And that double meaning you were talking about, one of the nice things about so much for that is that the primary meaning, which has to do with the Shep's having to write off the afterlife, uh, is, doesn't have to do with health care, right? Doesn't have to do with that side of the book. And it's only when you know what the book is about that you get that double meaning. And it's much better for that to be more submerged. And so I think that it's all, ultimately this is a more sophisticated title. But it, it, it's my husband's, it's my husband's credit. As a matter of fact, the original acknowledgments said, uh, left him out altogether because I get tired of, of spouses thanking their, you know, writers thanking their spouses all the time. It's just tired. Um, but when my husband saw the acknowledgments, he, he was hurt. <laughs> I said, but I gave, you, I gave you the title. <laughs> so he doesn't know it yet because he hasn't seen the finished copy, but um, behind his back, I put him into the acknowledgments in the final draft. So. Uh, one here. 
I, I will admit your comment about just kind of giving it up and take it from me and you've had enough of everyone. I get those moods all the time. You do. Yes. And uh, uh, actually, uh, there are two sides of the coin because when I do, um, for me, when I, I just kind of disconnect myself from people I know in the world mm. and I kind of find a corner and sit there and write. Uh, and it's when I think I do some of my best writing or best creative ideas when mm. I can shut myself from everyone I know and, and the world. In the state of exhaustion itself. and nihilism. <laughs> and I was wondering if it works for you that way or how do you, what do, how do you find these characters inside of you? And, and um, Because I love your characters in the books and, and I'm wondering how, what creative energy you use to, to find them. The exact sensation I'm talking about is not, for me, an especially creative energy. Because for the most part I'm writing about things that, that, that engage me, and that sensation is a disengagement. It's actually a, 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 a boredom, a deep sinking boredom of just having seen enough and, and had enough and not even being interested in all the things that I foment about. Um, and, and for me it's a very fleeting sensation. It's, it's almost like a cloud passing under the sun, and it's disturbing. It's also peaceful um, because it because it's tiredness. Hmm? Is that just called tiredness? No, it's something. Like, it's much more profound than that. And that's I spent um, three days on the passage I read last, trying to get it right, because this it's it's for me it's a very it, it's it's so fleeting that it's hard to pin down, because I I mean that that long list of things that. Jackson has had enough of kind of condenses in a single searing little moment. And uh, why I see it, I, th I think that it, there's a peaceful element to it, is that, <coughs> you know, I am going to die. I am going to die. And I like to feel as if there will be a come, there will, will come a point that, I, that I'll be ready for that. And and that that makes me feel relieved. I'm also relieved, though, that I don't feel that way all the time. <laughs> Hi. Um, can I ask you about something that you said um, towards the beginning? Mm -hmm. um, you were speaking about kind of political plots, and you said they must have um, implications for individuals. Mm. And I was wondering, um, do you mean individual characters, or do you mean for the individuals reading them? And if it's for the individual reading them, then how are you able to get the individuals to engage so that they do feel that it has some kind of significance for them? Well, certainly both. Uh, it needs to, whatever I'm writing about clearly has to have some impact on my characters. Um, but if, you, if I have chosen the right characters and the right subject matter, then however it works mysteriously with fiction, you end up identifying with them. You may or may not have been in that position, but something about successful literature in pulls you in. Honestly, I'm not quite sure how it works. Uh, I've learned the craft, I think. Uh, but only, of course, from reading other people's books who did it before me. And I, I find it something of a mystery. 
because it's true that a book like this um, is going to call up in you uh, any experience that you've had with someone being very ill or an experience that you may have had being very ill yourself. But I suspect that you can still get into it even if that hasn't happened to you because it could. <laughs> and, um, and I am writing about general issues that will have some impact on your life in some way. But for s some reason, skillfully written literature does draw you into someone's life that is very particular and in its particularity is not going to mirror your life. Yes, that's right. That there are elements of this story that seem close to you, that, that have to do with you. And that's one reason it's hard to get people to buy books that are set in foreign countries. You know, people instinctively want to read about close to home, people that, that are, who are like them. And, you know, that may be a weakness, but I, 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 it's a weakness with which I'm sympathetic. Um, I saw that there's a science book called We Need to Talk About Kelvin. Yes. Um, and I, I just wondered whether they had to ask you permission for that or it, whether they, people didn't just rip you off. No, um, no they didn't. And um, yes, I find it hilarious. Uh, and, you know, the fact of the law is that you can't copyright titles. Did you know that? So, no, I mean, actually somebody could come up with another book called So Much for That next week. <laughs> and, um, and it would be legal. Uh, so, actually, the one thing I did do when I heard about it is I wrote the publisher and I demanded a copy. <laughs> um, I have what I call my trophy shelf. It's the vainest thing in my life. <laughs> and it's copies of all the different uh, editions of my books. Oh, it's really nauseating. <laughs> I'm very acquisitive. I must get the new translation. It's like of, uh, you know, post-birthday, the, the Portuguese. Because um, I want to have a complete set. Um, but but one, of, one of the things I put on my trophy shelf is not only um, we need to talk about Kelvin, but there's another one. We need to talk about Kevin Keegan? <laughs> I don't follow very many sports. <laughs> Those two are side by side, and I take it as a compliment. I, I don't, I don't resent it. I think it's really, it's really sweet. Yeah. He's even got the same initials. Yes. Wow. Yes. Um, hi there. You said at the beginning that um, part of the motivation for writing this was your frustration with healthcare in the States. Um, and it sounded, well, my interpretation just from the short passages that some of that's coming out in Jackson's character. Um, do you anticipate or do you have any expectation about how this book might influence the policy debate? And do you see yourself taking a proactive role in that? I would like to. And one of the things that's driven me crazy about the way this has played out is uh, I started this book back in um, 2007. And that was a time that Obama wasn't even serious candidate for president, much less was he president. So history kind of caught up with me while I was writing the book. And um, 
he started he moved the health care legislation right to the top of his agenda and so i was worried that that the whole thing would be over by the time this book came out and one of the reasons i wrote this book is to try to contribute to the debate on what to do about american health care um, i may get in on it after all uh, because i i i do have a political motivation and um, that may make it lesser literature and I'm, that was something that i decided to risk I, I tried to still make it a very good book but it does speak to a particular problem in the united states and if it if it makes a contribution in that respect then i think the book will serve its purpose um, but i think it also still tells a good story so um, yeah we shall see whether i get to mouth off very much about that or not <laughs> Uh, I just wanted to ask you a bit more about the the, the feeling you're know, trying to evoke with that writing at mm -hmm. the end and, and people and all their crap. Mm -hmm. And um, is it a sort of weariness with having to struggle on with life and compete for money and you've never done enough? And, 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 and all the time we're actually choosing to engage with that, we're choosing to do that. But there is another choice, which is not to do that, which most, you know, most of us don't think about very often. Well, what you're but describing, in fact, is very close to Shep's version of the afterlife, his afterlife. It's a kind of opt-out. And, and in fact, um, earlier in that <coughs> passage that I read last, is um, Jackson starts thinking of suicide as his own private Pemba. You know, that that's a, a darker version of what Shep has come up, up with, because Shep wants out of it too. It's like enough already, enough with the bank account passwords and the you know the tax forms and the parking regulations and you know everything that modern Western life is made of. And yes, we all engage in that. Um, and a lot of it has to do with having to earn a, a, a what is to the rest of the world a fuck of a lot of money and still not really have a very high quality of life. And that's what what people outside the West don't don't get or the, where we wouldn't have an immigration problem. Do you have a uh, come across a point where you return between three worlds. I mean, uh, and they all have equal ring to the sentence, and you don't know what. To, do you ever experience this uh, hesitation? Uh, I, I that happens to me, except that what I'm usually dealing with is three words, all of which suck. <laughs> <laughs> And if I'm torn between the three words, then I need a fourth word. <laughs> yeah, what, what, up there. Um, so I'm interested in your take on why the healthcare reforms have been met with such hostility and resistance. Um, 
by the, the people that they're intended to help. Um, obviously, you've sort of put a lot of, of thought into this issue as you've been writing mm -hmm. the book, and I just wanted to hear your take on that. It is mysterious. Um, I think part of it is that uh, in, on American news, you hear from a shrill vocal minority. Uh, rather to my own surprise, Paul's document that the majority of the American public would really prefer what's called a single-payer system, which is what you have, like essentially a national health care system. And, uh, and yet, even Obama took that option off the table from the very beginning, which grieves me. I mean, there's something in me that would see the whole thing end in tears so that everything gets even worse, and finally we have to do something on a, you know, scrap everything, let's do something rational, i.e. what every other Western country is doing, right? Get rid of private health insurance. Uh, so, so we shall see. But, you know, the, the opposition is clearly being stirred up by, by commercial vested interests. It is not the popular <coughs> uprising that it's portrayed as. And um, I think that, the, and then there's also a vast middle area of uh, the American public that is just being fed huge amounts of misinformation um, and, and, and is, is anxious because, because the situation is so bad already, they can't afford for it to get any worse. You, you used the word, uh, or the phrase, socialized medicine mm -hmm. as a kind of real bogey. Mm -hmm. is, is there something in American political consciousness which, even if it wants something like a national health service, resists it because of some aspiration within? Oh yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of uh, political rhetoric in in the United States that that uh, claims, at least, that uh, we really believe in private enterprise mm -hmm. and. The truth is that we have uh, as big a government as you do, you know, time or, or bigger, uh, much much bigger, of course, uh, in, in in actual size, and uh, it's mere it's mere lip service. I uh, and why we would we would cling to uh, private health care when we have such a an overgrown public sector already, I don't know. I mean, what ma I don't know what makes that so so special. Money. That there's a lot of well, money in it for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the health insurance companies have more power than you can imagine in the United States. And that's because they are making so much money. And they control such a large proportion of the, the economy. It is now between a seventh and a sixth of the entire GDP. The Reifel lobby. Sorry? Reifel lobby. Yeah. Gun lobby. Well, I would think the gun lobby is on, on the well, other side. One there and then we'll take it. Just to move it off health care, um, I wanted to ask you a question about uh, literary devices. You mentioned in this new book um, the Merrill Lynch account figures going down and how that's part of how you structure the novel and how it yeah. becomes a character in its own right. 
Um, and I know from a couple of your other books, like The Post-Birthday World, you have the divide of it going on uh, parallel narratives. Mm -hmm. And in Kevin, there's uh, the, the letters, the series of letters. Um, and I was wondering if you could sort of expand upon that, what it is you like about those kind of techniques, and if there's other authors who use that kind of techniques that you really admire or mm -hmm. examples that you really like? I'm not obsessed with uh, experimental techniques, um, but I do like touches. And the, um, the business with the letters in Kevin and the Merrill Lynch account and so much for that, I would, both, I would call both of those touches. They're, um, they're ultimately decorative but they serve a, a purpose. In Kevin, the letters um, help to disguise something about the ending usefully, um, and they, they have a nice literal quality, so you don't get the feeling that Eva is sitting there writing in her journal or something. It, I, so I thought it, <coughs> it worked on a formal level, but secretly, the first draft of that book, while it was written in the second person, addressed to her husband, uh, didn't use any letters, and it was just uh, it was just chapters. And in order to turn it into letters, all I did was write, "Dear Franklin," at the top, <laughs> "Love Eva" at the bottom. <laughs> so sometimes uh, uh, much too much is made of the fact that that is technically an epistolary novel. Those little things um, just disguise the fact that it's a very traditional novel, right? I mean, in terms of its structure, you know. So, and the Merrill Lynch is if is, is, is anything is it's more decorative still. You, I added them in the second draft. Um, I came up with that idea of going running, um, and it's it's just a, it's just a way of giving you information that's very uh, deft and I don't have to plant in every chapter some reference that Shep makes to how much money he's got left, which he wouldn't, which that character wouldn't do anyway. He's too discreet. So, uh, so I mean, why do I do something like that? I think it's fun. <coughs> and I think it's fun for you. And it, it injects a little extra narrative tension in the book. Uh, and the ongoing story right, of the money. Um, I'm wondering, first of all, whether the sort of tedium vitae that you were describing earlier is a, is a particularly yes, writerly, a writerly malady. Maybe it's a, it's a, a kind of tedium with with meaning, with, with the sense that that all of this stuff that's accumulating is stuff that you might at some point have to say something about, and that the, that that's a, in some ways a kind of awful responsibility or weight. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm wondering also about, in a sense, the body that so far, in terms of your the way that you've, you've talked about the novel this afternoon, the body that so far is actually off stage, which is the body of the sick woman, um, and who, interestingly, you, know, you flagged up very early the fact that there was a link here with, with, with a friend. Um, so in that sense, it's, it's a writing that's coming out of a, quite an intimate experience. And I'm, I guess the question is whether there were particular difficulties in writing about that illness, about that body, about that person, I mean the fictional character. Um, in the light of the fact that illness in this book means so much, mm. that it links to, to, to so many much broader uh, economic and political questions, was there a particular difficulty in being intimate about 
that illness? Or actually, I guess the other question is, does it actually happen in the novel? Oh, yes. I mean, I just took a, a, a very deliberate sliver of this novel this afternoon. I wanted to, to try out the, some of the overt political stuff on, on this audience just to use you as guinea pigs. <laughs> um, and, and in some ways, they're the least dramatic and, and um, you know, least on point in, in terms of the plot. The book could probably live without all of it, except the last part. Um, so there's plenty of Glynis in this book. She is a huge character in this book, and there's plenty of illness. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> But uh, you do raise a, a, a good point, and that is, was it difficult? Yes. I don't mean that it was um, all that painful um, to write. I mean, certainly it meant dredging up what I went through with my friends, but in, in some ways that was therapeutic. Uh, but the, the, the real trouble was I was always feeling uneasy that this is a side of life that people simply don't want to read about. And so that I was I was putting together a book that would would be off putting to the reader. I, the last thing I ever want to write is is something that something worthy that you uh, you think <coughs> you should really get back to but you put it off because you dread it. You know, it's like, oh no, it's sitting at your bedside, it's time to read before you go to sleep, and you decide to give it a miss tonight because you're just not up for it. <laughs> and I, that's not an experience that I want to instill in my readers. I would like you to look forward to getting back to it. And I, I worried that in writing about illness and death, uh, that it was a bit of a turnoff. <laughs> and uh, the the biggest compliment that I've been paid about this book, which has come back at me a number of times now with the early readers, is that it's fun to read, and that, that is such a relief to me. You know that that it has mo narrative momentum, and that it makes you want to finish it. And that that to me is the biggest achievement of this book, not the political stuff that I read, but just. I seem to be getting people to read about something that secretly they don't want to. But just very quickly, do you ever write because you have to write? Do you feel the need rather than you always think about the reader? Oh, oh, for me, writing is is, is certainly a selfish enterprise. Yes, yes, and I write whatever I damn well want. <laughs> but I try to package it in, a, in such a way that I make you read it too. <laughs> Different way of putting it. Yeah. Lauren, as one of the early readers, um, I'm lucky compared to most people here in having read the book. And it is, of course, a wonderful black comedy. But it does have these very serious, very traumatic, um, poignant <coughs> themes too. And I wondered whether you felt you'd written a book here which one could give to a person who either had cancer or was very close to someone who had cancer? I hope so. I really hope so. Um, 
because this book goes at a number of things that I think would be a relief to read about in the same way that um, for a lot of readers of Kevin, it was a relief to read about uh, a mother who's honest about the experience. Uh, this is trying to be honest about the experience of illness and the experience of have, having a, a, a spouse who has, is terminally ill. And it's, it's, it's in fact much more about having someone close to you who's sick than being sick. There's, there's only one chapter in this book told from the perspective of Linus herself. Now, I actually, I don't know how, whether you agree with me, but I think it's one of the best chapters in the book. And my editor loved that chapter so much that uh, she said, well, I love that, getting something, getting in on what, what's going on with Glynis. Can't we have more of that? And I said, no. <laughs> Partly, that, that, that chapter is, it makes you want more only because there's so little of it. And I think one of the tricks to this book and one of the things that makes it more palatable is that it is death a step removed. But I think a lot of us are going to have to go through the, the illness and, and perhaps eventual death of someone very close to us, and a lot of us are going to have to go through it more than once. And, and that's before it ever happens to us. And I would hope that this book is, is something that you could give to someone who's going through that. And it takes on a number of things that I think that uh, someone who's had, who has cancer or who is dealing with it in some way would recognize. This whole business of um, talking about cancer as a battle, you know, it really bothers me. And that kind of onus that puts on someone who is already feeling shit, you know, to fight the good fight. No, I'm sorry. It also means that when they deteriorate anyway, it's secretly their fault. I mean, this this whole way of conceiving about of 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 cancer as as a battle that you have to win, and therefore putting the responsibility on the patient to somehow have the right attitude, is bollocks, right? And they've even done studies. I snuck this into post birthday. So I couldn't put it in this one. Um, they've done studies about, you know, to what degree if you have the, a positive attitude and, you know, you keep up your, your will and, and you think you're going to get well, whether that makes the slightest bit of difference in the outcome, well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. Statistically, it doesn't. So, you know, I think you have to give people who are sick permission to be grumpy, to, to be dark, uh, to have really bad days and not to always have to keep their chin up and to, and to take responsibility for their own outcome. Now, that kind of thing. The other, the other thing that, that uh, I, I, would, I would think that would be helpful to somebody who was sick uh, or, or has somebody close to them who's sick is this business of uh, the way people come to you and come to people who are very ill and expect some kind of revelation, right? You're about to die. What's it like over there? Um, tell, tell us what, what the truth is. You know, what, what's the meaning of life? What's really important? You know, you must, have, you must have had the clouds part for you. Well, you know, that's again, that's again an enormous responsibility to place on somebody who's very sick, you know? No, they don't necessarily feel a sense of revelation. No, they don't necessarily know more than they ever did. 
which is pretty depressing. But, you know, you can't necessarily go to sick people to, to change your life. So, that, so I, would, I would hope that that kind of candor in relation to illness would be useful. I said at the beginning that uh, Lyle's work crossed this space between the most personal and the most public, and I think that that last answer just uh, brings that very sharply into focus. Um, unfortunately, though, we have run out of time, so it just remains for us to thank Lionel very much.